On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Daniel Peterson about the devilish details of modal collapse. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is the doctrine of divine simplicity and how does this potentially generate a modal collapse? What exactly is a modal collapse and why is that a potential problem? What are the various tools conceptually that have been deployed that could potentially assist with avoiding a modal collapse? And why do some misunderstand the distinctions like between hypothetical necessity and absolute necessity? Does the, Do these accounts end up entailing fatalism and, and a whole lot more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And as we think seriously, we've tried to encourage and develop an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism in the growing polarization that we see, particularly in the sort of, I don't know what the cool term for it is, digital frontier there's a severe uh, tendency and, I guess, siren song to become polarized in one direction or the other of being a total softy on everything or being, you know, no enemies to the left or no enemies to the right thing, but everybody else is an enemy. And so becoming very like, you know, let's let's bring our um, our knives and our guns to the fight. We want to try to chart a middle path, uh, not a third way, because I know that that has all sorts of like negative connotations. The idea is simply we want to have an intellectual space where we can debate and discuss ideas that are important all across the spectrum with respect and honor, uh, but we do it with the utmost seriousness. And so one way of describing that is virtues like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. I know if you're a historical nerd, you're like, curiosity is a vice. And I'm like, no, not that kind of curiosity, not the curiosity to kill the cat, but the openness and interest in others and, and what they think and why they think it, uh, I think is a healthy disposition. Now, enough about me extolling these things. I am looking forward to introduce, introducing you all to Dr. Daniel Peterson. Uh, he, I'm excited to talk to him about a bunch of stuff, but primarily on this episode, we're going to be talking about the problem or lack thereof problem on modal collapse. So this has become a pretty popular argument of late. I know a lot of you guys who listen are, are aware or interested in Ryan Mullins and others' work because um, we've had Ryan on the show before. We've talked a lot about Doctrine of God sort of stuff, so modal collapse features pretty um, heavily in some of our episodes. So this should be a lot of fun. Before we get started, Daniel, uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, what are you doing now, and what was it that captured your mind for let's, let's write a paper on modal collapse? Yeah, hi. Well, thanks for having me, Jordan. Um, I'm the research fellow in systematic theology at the University of Aberdeen, where I've been for a few years now. Uh, and I got interested in this topic because I've been interested in the doctrine of God for a long time. And uh, I got into that because I'm a Schleiermacher specialist. And um, please ask your listeners to not turn off the podcast right away. But um, but I, I'm interested in his intellectual uh, his intellectual resources. And of course, that took me to reform scholastics, to Spinoza and Leibniz to uh, Aquinas and beyond uh, Augustine, whoever, right? And all of these thinkers say really interesting things about many of these topics, and yet none of them seem to say quite the same things that the modern thinkers are saying. 
Um, and some, and they break different ways on these questions at different points, and yet none of them are quite tracking the current discussion. And that dissonance got me really curious. So you mentioned several uh, bad guys, all modern guys. They're all the bad dudes. And then you, you, you did mention Aquinas and Augustine, so I guess we'll give you a pass. So maybe... maybe the the jury's out on whether the, you're going to be allowed back on the podcast. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, <laughs> and the so, Protestant scholastics. Right? Yeah. So the, yeah. the the problem of modal collapse. Before we jump into that, maybe you know I sent you over questions beforehand, like, hey, let's talk about this on your paper. And you mentioned, hey, w- w- it's probably a good idea to talk about divine simplicity first. And I thought, you know what? I don't know why I didn't even think about that. So just before we get into what modal collapse is. Give me the lay of the land on the doctrine of divine simplicity, so that I can help. So it can help me understand how modal collapse is a potential problem for it. Okay, so so this will be a repeat for some of your listeners, I'm sure. But in short, the doctrine of simplicity is the idea that God has no parts of any sort—logical, metaphysical, physical, whatever. Uh, that means that God has no accidents; that all of God's uh, attributes are essential, and that therefore they're all identical to the God's essence and to each other. I think that this is the kind of I think I've I didn't read that from a dictionary, but I but I might might as well have um, the the goods at stake. Everyone kind of knows that if they get into this. Right. And that's that's pretty well. I think people have gotten a hold of that. Well, the the goods that are at stake are the part that strikes me as what's missing. Like, Why would you subscribe to this goofy view? Um, this it seems to be such a problem. I mean, of course, you know, why would you even have to? duel over these things that seem so easy to excise. It seems like a kind of a metaphysically ambitious addendum to an otherwise pretty basic idea about God. But it it all, well, it can, there's many um, intersecting paths uh, toward, or goods that lead to common, common further common goods uh, on this path. But one of the ones that I think people, I mean, the most basic one that I think people ought to talk about more is the way the principle of sufficient reason functions with the doctrine of simplicity and the way that hitches up to the inherited accounts, which I think are plausible, of the way that whatever it is that stops the explanatory regress at the bottom of all metaphysics needs to be an, an, an unhypothetical first principle. So you mentioned the principle of sufficient reason. Yes. <laughs> I imagine half of a listener's don't know what that means. The other half are vaguely familiar with it. Where that there's like a ten percent bucket. They're like, oh yeah, I can define it. Great. <laughs> there's a bunch of people who who know what the word like they know the term, but they're fuzzy. So yeah. just walk me through a little bit of what that yeah. is, so I can understand how it relates. Okay, great. So thanks for slowing me down. Um, the the um, the principle of sufficient reason can be many things. So the good news is there's not just one plausible account, and people can kind of supply different versions. But the most basic version is something like for everything that exists, there's a reason why it exists uh, uh, or a reason why and a reason why it's so and not otherwise. Something like that. And again, there's, you can come up with different formulations that might um, that might stand up better to scrutiny. But that's the basic idea. Yeah. OK, that's helpful. So there's so a now, reason for everything. <laughs> right. And I think at least for me, like that intuition tracks pretty like that seems like a pretty obvious thing now i imagine there are people who want to deny the principle of sufficient reason i haven't read enough on the literature lately to know what the hottest take is on it yeah so so definitely people who want to deny it um many of them want to deny it in certain respects and some of them want to deny it in lots of respects 
Um, one of the problems where if, if you start slicing and dicing, if you want the principle to apply sometimes and not other times, it's very difficult to give non-arbitrary reasons why that should be the case. And so there's real pushback. And if any of your listeners are interested, check out the work of Michael De La Roca on some of this at Yale. Um, he's been a real defender of this. But theologians have sometimes been interested in this with respect to freedom, with respect to certain views of the will. But anti-theologians have typically been interested in it with respect to all other matters. So it's got a kind of, um, it's got a historically anyways, it kind of tilts towards, uh, towards op- opponents of theology, not just certain theological schools. Got it. So as all this hitches up to the problem or just modal collapse in general, walk me through what is modal collapse and why some think that that's a problem for those who want to affirm something like divine simplicity. Yeah, so a modal collapse is where, in this case anyways, is where possibility, all possibilities collapse into necessities. So there's no distinction between the possible and the necessary. Uh, so absolutely everything is absolutely necessary. People think this is a problem because they think it impinges on divine freedom. Um, and they think it's an entailment of a, 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 a constellation of attributes that are all mutually implicative. Um, divine simplicity, divine immutability, divine eternity, uh, that those sorts of attributes. So if you want to affirm those, they think that you get stuck with this consequence. But also, if you want to affirm those, you typically want to say God is free, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's the problem, the so-called problem of modal collapse. It's not possible to coherently sustain this suite of claims at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there any sense in which people, or there's wiggle room for people to say, well, I'm going to like kind of slightly redefine divine simplicity to potentially avoid this problem? Or is it strictly, you know, I've got to reject divine simplicity in, in total is the general sort of like move people are making these days? Yeah, so there's a lot of attempts to redefine simplicity. I don't find them as persuasive. I, I'd be open to being persuaded by them, but I, so far I have thought that they had many of the burdens and few of the advantages of the classical version. One reason the classical version, just to connect to the principle of sufficient reason, at bo- at the kind of metaphysical rock bottom, you'd expect, in, or- you, in order for the metaphysical questions to stop somewhere, you have to have a regress-ending explanation for anything. And in order for that to be truly regress-ending, it must explain not only everything else, but also itself entirely. But in order for it to explain itself entirely, it has to explain itself completely, entirely, in every respect whatsoever. And that makes it sound like it would be the traditional strong version of simplicity, or it would give up its regress-stopping power. Because then you'd be asking, oh good, how did all those other bits come about? So tell me, where does someone like Scotus's formal distinction fit in? Would you, con- would you consider that just a traditional standard strong divine simplicity, or is that somewhere else on the sort of like spectrum? I think Scotus is being slippery, but I'm not enough of a Scotus ef- expert to kind of uh, take a strong view. I, sus- I, I suspect that Scotus experts would probably agree, uh, but mm-hmm. I would want to hear from them before I <laughs> made too strong. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, good stuff. So uh, one of the distinctions you guys spent, uh, I know you and I can't remember who else you wrote the paper with. Who did you write the paper with? My friend Chris Lilly. Chris yeah. Lilly. So Chris, you you and Chris devote probably half of the essay, it seems, to the distinction between hypothetical and absolute necessity. 
Um, when I've read a lot of the accounts of like modal collapse is a problem, it's pretty much hand wavy. Like that distinction doesn't actually help or do anything. So first yeah. I want to know what is the distinction and why you think it can be deployed in this case before we talk about like, well, what happens if the distinctions bunk? Yeah, good. Okay. So the distinction between a hypothetical and an absolute necessity is the distinction between an absolute necessity is something the contrary of which involves contradiction considered in itself. And a hypothetical necessity is one the contrary of which involves a contradiction, but not considered in itself, only on the supposition of some condition. Um, what people, that might sound kind of crazy, but basically, if you think about it in just theological terms, the will of God um, makes things necessary. And theologians have wanted to describe a way that that can be true and yet can make contingent things necessary. Um, and I think that the big miss in much of the literature, and one of the reasons people in... Let me back up a second. I think the critics of it, in some ways I'm sympathetic, really sympathetic to the ways they don't think it's plausible because because they're assuming it's supposed to do work that it's not supposed to do. And so it's it's not good at that work, and they're right about that. So so if that was what it was supposed to do, they would be right, and that would be the end of the dis discussion. So somebody wrote back to me and said, oh, um, it, it related to this kind of stuff sometime, and said, well, this stuff, this hypothetical necessity business sounds like apparent heart attack, like not quite real necessity. And that's supposed to be how uh, theologians in this tradition secure contingency. And if it was supposed to function like that, it just wouldn't work. But it's not supposed to function like apparent heart attack. It doesn't mean fake necessity. So the key is to recognize that traditional theologians simply thought that everything was necessary. And to wrap our minds around this. Now, of course, there's dissenters, right? Scotus or whoever else, right? The Socinians. I mean, lots of folks are going to say, no, 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 in, the, in, in history. But the major traditions that were major thinkers in the tradition that we're pointing to you know, from Augustine to Thomas to the Reformed Scholastics to um, to people like Schleiermacher, they're all going to say, "No, everything is just necessary," and they're not they they're not um, they're not making a logical distinction between being necessary and not being necessary. They're making a distinction between the reasons or the ways the sorts of necessity things have, uh, just granted that they're necessary. I've got like 10 questions from <laughs> this and I I want to jump to all of them and I'm afraid to jump too far in advance but I guess one of the things you said there pretty much everybody's saying you know they're cool with necessity how does this map on to the discussions about free will uh is it can you be a libertarian about uh, about freedom and still say yeah everything's necessary so I think it's really plausible that Aquinas to read Aquinas as a kind of libertarian but that doesn't mean that he was and um, that he thought liber that, that he thought free will consisted in a kind of indeterminate libertarian freedom. Um, so, so he thinks that we choose between possibles, and that's what gives us the conditions for libertarian freedom. But the possibility of the possibles is just things considered in themselves. So it's going to work the same way for us and our choices as it works for God and God's choices. Uh, and so there's a there's a kind of consistency there, I think, that people have very often failed to recognize. Um, and it's just this, the only distinction, again, let me just be very clear for the audience, the only distinction between an absolute necessity and a hypothetical necessity is not whether they're necessary or not, 
but whether that necessity follows from test the test of in itself conceivability. So I can conceive of myself not existing because I, in fact, didn't used to exist. Right? But I can't conceive of a four-sided triangle. And that's the only difference that they're trying to draw out. Like, it's this almost shockingly modest point. And when we want it to, to give us full-blown, you know, um, 20th century accounts of libertarian freedom in a theological picture, it's completely understandable that 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 won't work but it's not because the older thinkers were bad at logic it's because there's just a fundamental disagreement about the goods that these accounts are supposed to secure and the older tradition just mostly wasn't trying to secure that kind of freedom that's i'm trying i'm trying my best to channel my libertarian friends because i'm not a libertarian so i i, I don't know all the right <laughs> questions to ask and, okay, well, to let tease me say, out the point yeah well let me say i did this is not to say that libertarian freedom uh, isn't true Right, I have. I'm not making any kind of negative claim whatsoever. Just that it wasn't what they were, what these other thinkers were after. So when people go, "Hey, that tool you're appealing to, um, that's really that's real that's really in inconvenient for the kind of freedom I'm after." There's they would just sort of shrug in most cases because it's not what they're after. You know, they would say, "Well, that sounds like your problem. <laughs> you know, not mine." Yeah. And it may be solvable, but it's not maybe solvable with those tools. And that, but that doesn't mean it's inconvenient or um, incoherent. Rather, that means that um, that there's just a mismatch between the, the two projects. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I know if you read reforms, scholastics like Turretin, he he's using the ver the terminology of hypothetical versus uh, absolute. You mentioned Thomas. Does he use that terminology? Yes, I can't remember. Okay. Is there anyone pr prior to the medieval period who's deploying those specific terms for a necessity? Yeah, so so um, Boethius gives us the theological version uh, that they they actually come from Aristotle, um, but they're not employed in quite the same way. So they're kind of re-signified um, in the in the in Boethius basically, and in the related schools that think with him. So, why do you think it is that a lot of the people who are concerned about modal collapse, maybe for some good reasons, are misunderstanding or? or potentially just ignoring this sort of logical distinction as useful when it comes to this problem? I think it's, I think it's an unfortunate consequence of us dividing our, um, the way we educate folks on these matters. So there's historical theologians that don't really do the philosophy, and then there's philosophical theologians that are not quite there on the historical context. Um, and this is something of a translation exercise, because you're going back and forth between centuries, and terms can sound really similar, but they're not always used in the same way. And so you can run across instances where you just lose track, not for any kind of malice, but just because it requires a little more familiarity or historical sensitivity to pull that off. And and I think that that has partly been the culprit. Hmm. So you, tell me if you think this is, is fair or accurate. A lot of the times when it comes to these sort of discussions, I'll see people like critics of more classical inclined doctrines say, well, look, I've got all the quotes to prove that they said X thing about necessity. Therefore, they think this. Um, here's here's all the citations. And it seems to me there's almost sort of like a, a Google search mentality to it where I search for this particular word and I find it. But I, I'm not devoting significant enough significant time to understand the logic of how that, you know, absolute or hypothetical necessity is actually working in their system. Yeah. Is that a fair thought? 
Yeah, I don't know enough about the kind of, um, you know, online conversation about it, like in chats or, or uh, you know, on social media or whatever. But I, I think that in general, that's right. I mean, when I read the academic works, even I feel that way. I think this person knows a lot about the contemporary conversation, but there there's a certain anachronism that's tripping them up. Um, and and it's not it's it, it goes for theologians and philosophers. It's, I don't think it, it's not kind of one side is more vulnerable yeah. to it than the other. You know, I, I see it kind of as a general problem and a confusion about what the conditions of success and the conditions of failure can and must be and those are kind of background assumptions about orthodoxy um, and so the kind you get this kind of ironic thing where you know for example many you know many modern reformed theologians will want to question divine simplicity or at least redo it in various ways um, whereas that would be you know um, the uh, basically is tantamount to atheism to the reformed orthodox mm-hmm. right I mean so now, I'm not saying we should agree with them over the moderns, but I'm just saying, like, boy, that's a really big difference in, um, you know, in, in ethos between the in judgments and norms between these different eras in one and the same tradition. Yeah, that 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 is uh, helpful context. So one of the you, you said this in your paper somewhere about how some have wondered, well, do these accounts of necessity end up entailing fatalism of some sort? Yeah. Is that what we get? Uh, maybe, um, although we have to say more about what we mean by fatalism and the sort of bad thing. Again, we're back to the norms, right? What are the standards of success and failure? Um, and, and let me also say, I, I'm i not sure that these distinctions do succeed. I just think that they haven't, what I want to argue is that they haven't been shown to not succeed uh, and that there needs to be better arguments to show that they fail. Just saying, hey, this doesn't this doesn't make sense for me on my a post Bertrand Russell philosophical system, like okay, the medievals don't share that system. What's your point? You know, we got to have a bit of a a bit more of a conversation. To, even if they're, I'm not convinced they succeed, but they need to be uh, shown with another step or so. Even if it were shown, however, this gets to your question that that distinction failed. Or what was your question? If it failed, it would be fatalism, well, or if it succeeded. <laughs> either way, I'm just interested in fatal. Like, either way, is it going to collapse in a fatalism of some sort? Because that okay, seems so, like yeah. I'm thinking fatalism as like the bad, like people don't like fatalism because I my decisions don't matter and and those sort of things. Right, like it, it's, it's all pointless because it's all going to head to the same direction. So I might as well, you know, sit ice cream, sit in the ice cream and watch TV and do nothing. Yeah. Um. So so maybe basically depending on how you want to define it. But since these definitions are so slippery, you could kind of make it work or make it not work depending. Yeah. A, a thinker like Leibniz is a really interesting test case here. So he distinguishes uh, between three different sorts of fatality or between three different sorts of fatalism. Uh, he calls one of them a Turkish fate, uh, which is supposed to be a kind of um, stand in for Muslim accounts that he's familiar with, which may or may not in the German context, sometimes they're straw men that serve as so that's not this is not good his history of religions work but but like um and then the other one he says is a stoic fate um and then the last one he says is christian fate and he says that christian fate is just providence um and he and he links christian fate to um the divine decrees so i think part of it is just you know if you find something like exhaustive divine providence or uh, an account of the divine decrees to be distasteful, you're unlikely t- to like accounts that in- involve necessity. But actually, we already knew that. 
because if you don't like those accounts, what you don't like is the necessity in them. <laughs> so we've not really learned anything new. We're just learning that these ideas come as a package. Yeah. So the package idea, you know, I know I, I don't want to keep beating the drum. I'm just interested in your take on, I think of somebody like Arminius, he seems to hold to traditional classical doctrines on, on, on God when it comes to simplicity and immutability and the like. Is he going to be inconsistent? Like, we don't have to just talk about him as a historical figure, but him as a launching pad for, like, holding ideas and tension. Can you hold to something like divine simplicity in the strong sense and yet still have um, some distaste for these necessities where you want to have a little bit more leeway when it comes to freedom and possibility? Yeah, so, um, well, let's put a hold on the on all freedom for a second, because this only follows if you're worried about libertarian freedom. Um, but, and it, it, and I, I take it you're, you're right, I mean, distinguishing Arminius, who was probably, I mean, he just had a different order of decrees, basically. Um, it wasn't that radical right away, but the tradition wants a different sort of freedom that, tr that follows from him. Um, and, and I think maybe there's some tension there, depending on whether you want that on want, uh, whether you want what is willed to not happen with any necessity whatsoever. Um, but that would mean things that like, for example, I take it anyways, that that would mean things like you give up exhaustive divine foreknowledge. So, and once you, so once you're giving up one set of attributes, you're going to start um, giving up or modifying other related attributes. And you'll end up with something maybe like open theism, or maybe like a, a kind of a, a strong process account or you'll end, I mean, there's options out there that you can, that you could, but then you're not going to be worried about simplicity because you're going to be granting that God, um, that God learns something that God um, maybe is on a kind of cosmic adventure, you know, with us or depending on the strength of, you know, maybe for, on certain process accounts or whatever. Uh, so I think that people will, people don't need to be argued out of simplicity once they proceed down that path. They're going to actually want to say no, we, we don't value that as much as these other attributes conceived yeah. this way. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. So I, I want to know, you, you mentioned in the paper this necessity of compulsion or immutability. Walk me through these two or what they mean and how they relate to the discussion. Yeah, so, um, so necessity of compulsion is the easy one. It's just you're being made to do something by something else or someone else. And that's the kind that theologians are actually worried about. They're really worried about blind necessity and the necessity of compulsion. So acting without, without knowledge and will or acting against your knowledge and will. And the necessity of immutability is um, harder to give an example of because, of course, immutability is unique. But, um, uh, but you, could, you, could give, you could give analogies like, for example, I cannot help but love my children. But that's something that I do from myself. That's something that is most me. It's, it, it is inexorable that I love, you know, or might love my family, but it's not um, com compelled in, a neg in any kind of negative way. There's not somebody holding a gun to my head saying, you know, love your family. So would you say the, this maps pretty well on to the, like the Frankfurt style cases? Yeah. I mean, so that's, I, I don't know Harry Frankfurt's sort of personal journey to this, but I suspect that um, he maybe paid attention to some of these cases. It was looking at figures like Spinoza also, who have given arguments that only if, if, um, if everything is absolutely necessary, 
and everything follows from God by the same necessity, is God-free. Because otherwise, all sorts of indeterminacies will compound to God's essence. So, yeah, there's all sorts of... Um, there's all sorts of reasons you might think, but yeah, there's a whole conversation and you see this swing in the analytic tradition where actually maybe we're not quite so sure about what freedom consists in. And it's largely because people have rethought those assumptions. And I take it that the theologians just shared the assumptions that are being uh, um, resurfaced. Yeah. Now you devote a good portion of the paper to basically saying, Let, let's say all these distinctions don't work and we do end up with a modal collapse. Let's explain why we think it's not a problem. Yeah. I think my gut intuition is that a lot of people would be like, wait, 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 wait. That seems like we can't go that route. Um, I've had a personal intuition to think that you can, though I still, for some reason, find it like, less than desirable. So just, I guess, two related questions are, one, why is it not a problem? And then two, is there any reason for us to feel a little bit uncomfortable with admitting the total modal collapse all across the board? Yeah. So why should we find it a, a problem if it's, I mean, if it's absolute necessity um, all the way down, then you will not be able to find any account of libertarian freedom. So even Aquinas's version will not be able, you'll not get it off the ground because that account relies on this in itself conceivability distinction. And if absolute necessity is all the way down, you won't be able to secure libertarian compatibilist accounts of freedom. Uh, so that would be one consequence that you might be worried about if that was, yeah. if that was uh, of paramount importance. The other thing is that they the people worry that it makes creatures equally as necessary as God. I think that that's a more probably uh, that's another interesting objection. But there's uh, plenty of I mean there's replies to that and the um, that I think are fully satisfactory. And then the same thing with um, uh, uh, um, not just creatures being necessary as, as God, but but compelling God to do because they're necessary, undoing things like the the graciousness of grace or uh, you know various things like that. Right? Co they amount to if they're equally necessary. People worry they tie God, for example, uh, by by the eternity of the world or something like that. They tie the divine essence to creation in a way that makes God dependent on creation. So, but can those, I think that those can be replied to, and basically you can give up on certain sorts of distinctions, you can give up on the on the uh, absolute hypothetical necessity distinction, and just make a distinction in the grounds or reasons for things for things being necessary on other, in, a, in spelled out in a different way. So that, that tradition wants to rely on in itself conceivability, but you can substitute that with just relations of dependence. So yes, all these things are equally absolutely necessary, but this one's absolutely necessary because of this extrinsic thing. And it's the because of this extrinsic thing that we really care about, the relation of dependence. So that's fine. It doesn't change the internal concept. The internal concept of, say, me existing, even though I didn't exist, my existence is, at present, absolutely necessary. Um, it's just that I depend for my existence, and you can specify that separately. So yeah. I don't see it as a knockdown case in any way. So I guess maybe the the question I have here at this point is, I think a lot of people are going to say, well, it seems to me that when I read the tradition, pretty much everybody strongly wants to say God has libertarian free will. He has the ability to choose to create or not to create. 
he has that freedom. Um, does this account end up denying that and saying, well, God actually doesn't have freedom. He must create, which seems uh, problematic in some sense. Yeah, so so that's where, first of all, the distinction, just to harken back earlier, to, to the, to, between the necessity of compulsion and the necessity of immutability is one that lies in the broader tradition. That's not one that you'd only have recourse to if you suppose this collapse happened. So that's something that people are already going to say, no, it's all immutable. It's, it's There's a certain necessity of immutability by which God is and does certain things, and that's totally fine. Essentially, what the what the person who grants a modal collapse but says it's not a problem does, is to just extend the scope of that of that caveat. Just say that's just all necessity of immutability and none of its compulsion. And I think that, um, yeah. Well, I'll stop there. Yeah, do you have a follow up on that? Yeah, I guess I I'm personally fine with it, um, but I just I can imagine a significant number of people saying, well, that. Even if that's internally consistent and you can make it all work, there's still something about wanting to to secure a robust divine freedom because it seems like, well, it, it's emptying it of what we have intuitively thought it meant. Yeah. And is there a way for us to say God is free in some substantial sense and yet still have a modal collapse? Yeah, okay, so just to zoom back a bit historically, too, so to the people who want to uphold this distinction, they're going to say God enjoys a certain sort of libertarian freedom, but not maybe the total sort that people have come to expect. So again, it's about setting our historical expectations a bit more in context. So um, people like Aquinas think that God um, must, of absolute necessity, will God's self as ultimate end. Uh, so there's no choice in the matter. That's it. That is the most important and biggest thing God wills is not a matter of choice and, and couldn't possibly be. The only thing that God has libertarian uh, free will with respect to is the choice of means. And there God is subject to moral necessity, to the necessity of the best. So even though, say, there's five options for creating or there's not creating and creating in four different ways or whatever, right? Or a zillion, doesn't matter, but just for these purposes. God's going to know, by virtue of God's um, wisdom and, um, and knowledge, which of these is best, most conducive to communicating the divine goodness. Communicating the divine goodness is the one thing God cannot not do. It just follows from being God uh, that God must, of natural necessity, do this, which is to say the communicating divine goodness is just love, right? So it's just saying God cannot not be love. That's the, that's the bottom of this doctrine. And I think what that... If... Sorry, but ahead. what if you deny that there's a best of all possible worlds? Well, um, and I, let's yeah. avoid yeah. possible world semantics. If you're yeah. a nerdy philosopher, yeah. I'm not using it in a technical sense. Just you know, you mean in the Leibnizian any like old, old school? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, so folks are going to ask um, why you wouldn't have a best, right? So you're going to have identity of indiscernibles kinds of questions i so so that'll just be that the premise will be challenged um but if you said okay well, let's just assume that there's no best uh then they might say well then they're just this equally good and because they're in any relevant respect the same so they're just not different you know uh i don't know i mean i think the theologians that have tended to subscribe to this have typically not 
because they subscribe to other views like the convertibility of being and goodness, they tend not to think that there's an indifference of the means to the end. Um, and I would probably push back on that point too. Um, but I suppose if you thought that they were equally good, then you'd thought there'd be either equal sufficient reason or no sufficient reason. But you'd still have the same account of whichever ones were not were not selected would be impossible um, in actuality, but in themselves conceivable. So it doesn't really matter how they're selected for the purposes of this of the earlier question. It's just that they are we're back to the t sort of for to Thomas's account of the way his sort of weird libertarian compatibilism is supposed to work. So the the the, the strength of the possibility and choice doesn't lie in the fact that the agent will choose otherwise, but rather in the fact that the that the that other things might otherwise have been chosen. In this weird asymmetry uh, between those two uh, those two angles on the same question is what is all he thinks you need to get the right sort of choice. So to your question about what you give up when you go to absolute necessity all the way down, you just give up that weird notion of kind of background things in themselves being possible. Yeah. I, so I want to push uh, a little bit more on our intuitions on like the, there being a best across the board on different things. Take a local example. I'm thinking of Catherine Rogers and her book, Perfect Being Theology, talks about like there, there's the question of, you know, is she uses a simple example of is it better to pick to eat strawberry ice cream or like chocolate ice cream or something else? And a lot of people, I think, have an intuition to say, well, that's pretty value neutral. It's like it's not really better to, to pick strawberry than it is to pick chocolate. I mean, maybe you personally have a very strong opinion, but from a value-laden perspective, there's no difference between the two. She ultimately, I think, says that, like, well, actually there is, and it is better to pick one in particular situations. But I think a lot of people are still going to want to say, like, that doesn't make sense or that feels wrong. And um, and um, and that and your the challenge would be something like you know this whole account of of the of moral necessity therefore should just go out at the window. Yeah, also, that's right. Like that. Okay. So then I would like yeah. if if it's the case that there are my like simple things like that where there's not a best, then I would blow it up on large scale and say, well, look, see there. If it's if it's true in this case, I'm going to keep moving it up the scale and show you different examples on different uh, different ways to say, well, there's really no best between these two options so just to so uh, um earlier i got slightly distracted by just explaining why this matters and I'm, i want to get back to this but i guess as i think about it i think you could go either way and not have to make particular decisions on it wouldn't necessarily bear on what what you think about uh absolute hypothetical necessity distinction and modal collapse if you wanted to sustain the distinction you could and just say Listen, all we're worried about is the sense of possibles that remains. If you wanted to collapse the distinction, you say it's fine if God doesn't enjoy, I don't know, choice or whatever. We don't, I mean, as in the, or any sort of moral necessity, we don't care about any of that. Like, we just think that this is exactly what God does and God couldn't do otherwise. So you could say all that. You don't have to. Um, and if you, but it's, and it's possible if you think that the problem with in itself conceivability, with the in itself conceivability test is that things can't be kind of isolated and just looked at in themselves, but always have to be looked at in their um, in their surroundings and relations and so on. Uh, 
you might think that actually the moral necessity that somebody like Aquinas or Leibniz wants to point to as God acting for the best by way of wisdom is exactly what you would get perfectly uh, coherently with an absolute necessity all the way down account because you'd have the moral necessity becoming a kind of absolute necessity. But that would all follow from God's goodness. Yeah, that's the that's the critical point is that so if you want to kind of flatten the value, uh, it's very difficult to do that. Got it. Excellent. And that's a so, different parallel argument. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw a, a, a somewhat random off the wall question at you and hmm. see what see what you say to this. So we have a lot of listeners who are in that process of graduate education. They're, they're like doing master's work. They're thinking about Ph.D. You've been on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. In your opinion, if you were to do a PhD, where would you want to do it? An American model or a UK-based sort of model? Oh, man. Oh, that's such a tough question. Okay, well, first of all, I think that there are advantages to both now that I've seen both. And I would say partly depends on you and your circumstances and your aims. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the University of Aberdeen. Um, and the, I just really think it has an amazing student body and the faculty are supportive and so on. So that's the kind of the culture is what is one of the things that's most appealing to me. The three years is shorter. So I would say if you're unprepared or you think you need more time to ramp up, you'd want to think about either preparatory master's programs and then it's, and then such a program, or you'd want to think about an extended version of such a program, or you'd want to think about a U.S. PhD. You mentioned the, the culture of the program there. How is it, like, what is it that's really cultivating that culture on a continued basis? Is it just, well, this is the tradition that we've been given and we continue in it? Because um, I, I think of people who are like, well, I want to start my own sort of, I want to build a culture like that where I'm at yeah, and help people to think in these sort of patterns and develop serious relationships and things. Like, what's what's causing those things? Well, we do have a, we we are lucky to have an inheritance of this. So we've had faculty going back you know, decades and decades that have opened their homes to students and, you know, uh, been set up friendly and inviting classrooms and so on. But we also just have to check in. We check in with each other. We check in with students all the time. Um, I just had lunch with a room full of students today. And um, we have this, this stuff is, is always ongoing. And it, it, it's the students that reinforce the university's culture just as much as the university that reinforces the student culture. And all that's a kind of feedback loop. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. So one last question I want to ask you. You've done a lot of technical research into areas of theology. If somebody is a pastor, how does this sort of material end up? Can it be useful in any sense? Or would you say, no, your time's better used doing other things? Like, How does this fit into a sort of like the pastoral vocation? Yeah. So first of all, it could be useful for pastors as a little intellectual vacation, right? So just, it's a fun break and you can, you're allowed to think about fun things because it's part of your re recreation in service of your, in service of your mission to the church. <laughs> so go for it, right? If you just enjoy it, that's fine. But second of all, it can be useful if you're, if you're in a tradition that wants to think about providence and predestination or any of these kinds of themes like that, it gives you resources for thinking about what you may or may not have to give up or have to claim in order to sustain those sorts of pastoral doctrines, those pastoral-facing doctrines. But regardless, I think one of the, back to the uh, 
initial sort of desiderata. Why would anybody want freedom? It's um, for most of us when we have some when there's something true about us or we have some quality or attribute, uh, it can come and go. And it could be true of us, but only sometimes or in some respects. And it might be true of us as an add-on or superficially true, you know, in some sort of way like that. It might not be who we really are. And I think that um, one of the things that divine simplicity is trying to say is that when we learn in the incarnation who and what God is most truly, that's not any different than what God is eternally. Uh, there, there is, as other people have put it, there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ, right? So that is eternally who and what God is, not a kind of addendum. And so if you, unless you think that everything God is, is uh, God is essentially, you cannot guarantee that to be true. And I take it that that is the most, the, the most direct pastoral lesson that that's a fantastic note to pretty much end on before I, <laughs> but I good. do I want to ask uh, do you have a website or a place that people can go to follow your work and to find you I, I don't have a website uh, the University of Aberdeen has a Twitter now X yeah profile <laughs> no no comment and um, uh, and and they they often communicate work and of course we have a department web page. I, where you can find my email. And if folks are interested in talking, you know, I just like to chat with people. So if you're interested in reading this stuff and the article we're referring to is open access. So mm-hmm. anyone can download it and share it for free. It, you can email it to your friends, you know, give it, give it away as Christmas presents, whatever you want to do. Okay. I lied. I have another question. Oh no. Okay. You've got a, you've got a title like research fellow in systematic theology. Does that mean, do you supervise any PhD doctoral students? Yes, I can. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Right now, all, all of mine are co-supervised, but but that's something that I can do, and that's also fine. And we we have a faculty that um, a big faculty with lots of folks interested in doing uh, different sorts of work, but a lot of it reformed. Um, and we just today announced that we um, that we are bringing uh, Bruce McCormick on board oh, our excellent. faculty uh, in this this autumn. So I'm I'm really excited for that because so, I Bruce was my doctoral supervisor, so it's a bit of a reunion. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's very exciting. So everybody's been listening. I mean, you guys, I know a lot of you guys are always asking questions about sort of graduate study. And so check out uh, Daniel's work. Uh, keep up with him. If, if you find things that are of mutual interest, you should reach out to him. My advice when it comes to that sort of stuff is to email people. Um, give them time to respond to you because they're busy. Um, but if you're a prospective student and you're clear and you, you put down like, hey, I'd love to, to just take carve out a couple minutes and just chat about you about potential future study, 99% of people are cool talking to you. So take the leap and email some people about it. Um, just don't be the annoying person who like asks for like an answer to a question that's significant and extended and gets mad that if, it, if you don't respond in 48 hours. Um, that, that's unreasonable. So that, that's just my advice as a random podcast host guy. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to uh, the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.